This week on the show, we cover the OpenBSD part one of a longer series of how it all started. We explain top on FreeBSD. We measure power efficiency on a CPU frequency scheduler on OpenBSD. Show you CultBSD, a whole lot of Beastie Bits and more in this week's episode of BSD. BSD Now, episode 428, Cult of BSD, recorded on the 3rd of November 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoid. And if you want to support us, find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode, everyone. We have searched far and wide for headlines this week and yes as always we found something and uh, the item here is what every it person needs to know about openbsd part one yes from the asia pacific nick oh yes uh, written by peter hanstein yeah and how it all started so it's starting at the very early days in the beginning yeah it starts off with the, the puffy logo and says so long and thanks for all the passwords so functional, free, and secure by default, OpenBSD remains a critical yet largely under-acknowledged player in the open source field. This series aims to highlight the project's signature, uh, signature security features and its development practices, and it's raised a sharp focus on correct and secure code coupled with continuing code audits, as well as the project's role as a source of innovation in security practices and an upstream source of numerous widely used components like OpenSSH, PF, LibreSSL, and others. Uh, this post will focus on the history. Uh, part two will then focus on usage and user experience. And part three, we'll look at that package filler. So the highlights, uh, OpenBSD has been around for more than 25 years now, starting back in October of 1995 as a fork of NetBSD. OpenBSD is uh, proactively secure with only two remote holes in the default installation in the whole uh, time there. Um, OpenBSD pioneered using strong cryptography and was the first free system to ship with IPsec, uh, which entangling itself in U.S. export regulations in the process and is one of the reasons why OpenBSD is based in Canada. Uh, OpenBSD, uh, OpenBSD also pioneered and is still leading uh, the culture of code audits and fixing similar bugs tree-wide when they're found. So, you know, when, we find, when they find a security a visit, uh, a vulnerability, they don't just fix it, they're like, I wonder if this same pattern was repeated elsewhere in the code, and let's go look for all the cases where a similar vulnerability might exist and fix them all at once. It also has uh, security enhancements enabled by default, which uh, are hard going to impossible to disable, um, which you know I know a lot of other operating systems have a lot of those features, and you can enable them if you want, but they're not on by default. But OpenBSD uh, has them on by default and makes it hard to turn them off instead of the other way around. Uh, OpenBSD is open source, uh, free software, and the project actually encourages independent verification of code quality and security, and I think was also one of the pioneers in the whole idea of just posting the whole source code on the internet on a regular basis or giving access to uh, the version control rather than just you know snapshots or tarballs, but actually letting people see the whole history of the code. Uh, today, OpenBSD is used in many network-centric roles, even though it's a general-purpose operating system, albeit with a particular emphasis on security. Uh, it has a high quality, 
or sorry, high profile quality image based on actual code quality and proven performance in real world use. And OpenBSD is the upstream or origin for a bunch of big projects, including OpenSSH, OpenBGPD, uh, PF, OpenSMPDD, uh, and LibreSSL. Uh, IKD, Mandoc, and several others. There's a whole list on the OpenBSD Innovations page. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they certainly have come a long way and had a, a good run for it. Yeah, and so I always like when, yeah, when even Linux systems boot and they have like starting the OpenBSD SSH server, and I'm like, yes, we are in there too. Yeah, and then uh, Peter Hansen's article goes uh, rewinds back to the '80s and kind of talks about the beginnings of BSD and getting ported to the 386 and, you know, the Dr. Dobbs stuff and FreeBSD and NetBSD and then BSDI and on and through the birth of OpenBSD. And then uh, with a special note that you are already an OpenBSD user. Uh, you know, it's probably useful at some point to reveal that even if you don't know it, you're uh, more likely than not to have used code from OpenBSD, whether that's in an Apple product, uh, in an Android device, a Cisco router, and some Solaris or Linux or some other Unix or even some Microsoft products. Yeah, actually, uh, Windows 10 and later ship with OpenSSH uh, clients built in too, right? Oh, yes. That's why we can SSH into Windows boxes now. Well, more useful is being able to SSH out or... without needing to go download an application <laughs> first. <laughs> that too. No, no putty, no kitty, no nothing. Although they're good software. But yeah, definitely, we will probably feature the other parts as well when they come out. And uh, yeah, well worth reading the whole piece. Uh, next, we have uh, another, it's like every every week comes something new from Clara Systems. They have today explaining top on FreeBSD. Ah, yes, the venerable top. Yeah. So they start, or the article starts with, we all know and have at least once used the top command to track information about our CPU and processes. But how many of you know that what each field means? Hmm. Today, we will guide you through each of these fields. By default, top displays the top processes uh, on each system and periodically updates this information every 2.0 seconds using the raw CPU percentage uh, to rank the processes in the list. What's the top process most of the time? top uh no that's, that's the not first always. thing i noticed compared to <laughs> linux is that previously's top uses a lot less cpu because it doesn't walk a giant tree of of proc stuff having to read it all yeah depending <laughs> on the mode you started in the top process is usually idle depends how many cpus you have that but... too yeah the idle process is is there for a reason so that something gets run um, so yeah, the, the default top output is displayed here that many people have probably seen and they just uh, describe many of these fields uh, on based on this output or the numbers presented there. So the first line, the last PID shows the last process ID of the most recent process and load averages, they're pretty much also self-explanatory. Um, well, load average is uh, kind of magic because every OS does it a bit differently. Uh, in particular, on Linux, load average includes disk I.O., and on BSDs, the load average is only about the CPU. Yeah, that's that's a good uh, distinction to make. Yeah, that's uh, that needs to be accounted for. Um, then we have the process states. We now have covered the first line of output from top time for the second line. This one contains information about the current count of processes and their states. On this system, there are 22 processes with one running and 21 sleeping processes. All good. Next line is the CPU use. Uh, this is the third one. 
shows a summary breakdown of what is currently running on the system CPU, divided into the user field, the usage of user-based processes, then the nice field, which the CPU time is taken by processes with different nice priorities, and the system field shows how much CPU time is used by the kernel itself, with interrupt fields showing how much CPU time is delegated to interrupt support, and last but not least, the idle field. Which is mostly hardware, like your network card and so on, is usually what generates most of the interrupts. Yeah, waiting for, yeah, waiting for something to happen, a packet arriving or... Well, yeah, so uh, the, the interrupts are when it, the device is telling the kernel that something happened, could you please pay attention to me? Yeah, I will. I, will, I want the CPU slice. Uh, yeah, and idle fields showing how much CPU time is unused or free. Memory is the fourth line of the top command, and mem shows a detailed summary of the memory information. Uh, for example, active shows the number of bytes used by actively running processes. That gets interesting when it comes to when you're running a ZFS system because there is some um, distinction to make there. Inactive shows the number of bytes not recently used by a process, while the process itself may still remain active, just some parts of its memory has not been used recently. And then there's something that people usually find peculiar. The laundry queue shows the amount of memory that is dirty needing to be laundering before needing to laundry, yeah, needing to be laundering before it can be reused. Data that has been modified since it has been read from disk or has not yet been stored on disk cannot be easily recreated. So it must be written to swap or the modified file before that memory can be reused. And there's a separate article about exploring swap on FreeBSD on Clara's page as well. Yeah, and it kind of explains how the whole laundry thing works. Yeah, so that why, um, that's what people wonder. I think Linux doesn't have that laundry well, line. FreeBSD well, FreeBSD didn't until, I think, 12 as well. So yeah, in the, the past it was Divided it even more. <laughs> now the wired count. That shows the number of bytes wired down, which, unlike the other types, cannot be swapped out. So this is fixed in memory as long as the systems running more or less um buff as people have probably uh, show uh, or guessed already shows the number of bytes needed for buffers and caches instead of being swapped out they will be just freed and free shows you guessed it free memory yeah and then if you're using zfs and it has an arc most of that memory will be in the wired category uh, and that's can be a significant contribution to the amount of wired memory yep and there's the lines for compressed and uncompressed that I think you added, Alan, a while ago. And so there you can see how much the ZFS arc would be if it were compressed, like it is at the moment, or if how big it would be if it would be not compressed, like how much would it actually be if it couldn't be compressed somehow. Right. So that's, uh, to clarify, that's the compressed size is how big the how much data that is compressed is in the arc right now. And then the uncompressed size is if it wasn't compressed, how much room that would take. Mm. So in this example where the arc is uh, 101 megabytes of the actual cached data, uh, it's only taking 12 megabytes of memory, but it's actually holding 52 megabytes of data. Meaning that, you know, the arc is four and a half times smaller than it would be if you weren't using compression. Yeah. And many, so you can cache a lot more stuff in that, limited amount of space exactly yeah if you have only so much memory and you can stuff more in by compressing it the better it is then there's a section on swap i guess that's also fairly self-explanatory which is showing yeah although there was also a recent commit uh to FreeBSD 14 uh that provides some sysctls to help you figure out who's using all that oh swap. yes i saw that from warner lush i think 
yeah, that was that was good. I will. I, I don't remember who it was from, but I, I will I remember tweeting. Try this out because sometimes you're like, mm, who is swapping? What's the process that's doing that? And so yeah, it's like I, I've used up all six gigs of my swap <laughs> for what? Who's the culprit? Um, so yeah, this is the swap space uh, section, and then there's the cores monitoring. If you at the moment you get the uh, combined view, but if you uh, press Shift P. Then you get all CPUs if you have. And if you have like 72, then the display might be a bit more, depending on your screen resolution. Um, <laughs> there's not much left of top then. But yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, I looked at different ways of trying to make more CPUs fit on the screen by like maybe just not going, saying all oh, user nice system interrupt or instead turning the table on its head, having one line for user nice system interrupt and idle and each of them just having a cpu and its uh, percentages or something uh but eventually once you got over about 40 it looked terrible either way and with less than 40 the current way is fine and so it was i don't know it, it didn't seem to be worth the change anymore yeah it's more after spending yeah, much time trying probably. to turn it on its head Mm. it's difficult as, as more cpus get added to systems and we only have so many screen lines we can print on yeah you know like playing with a machine with 160 cpus at the moment and it's like okay <laughs> yeah, well not, not checking that status of each individual one uh then they list some interactive mode options so you can use the space bar or the uh you can kill processes using the k and then the uh process id of course and then uh, they talk about the I/O mode, which is interesting. Uh, so, yeah, so the top has this whole other mode that you might never hidden see behind before. the scenes, but perfectly usable. So you can display not only CPUs and memory, but also I/O for your disks or for your general system what it's doing in the I/O space. And that's the oh they, oh yes, uh, they they have also some peculiar uh, columns there like VCSW and IVCSW. Those are the voluntary context switches and the involuntary context switches. Like if a process has used up its time slice on the scheduler, then it gets um, removed and some other process has a chance to run. And those are shown by these columns. Yeah, just how often the, the program got interrupted by either being out of its time for CPU or needing to switch into the kernel or mm -hmm. whatever. And if you want to go deeper, then you can install, of course, other programs, uh, HTOP, GSTAT, SysTAT, VMSTAT, and I, well, you don't have to install those uh, last three. I think GSTAT, SysTAT, and VMSTAT are already a part of the base system. But if you want something from the ports collection, I have found GoTop to be interesting because it shows you some squiggly lines and showing, you know, uh, how... CPUs and memory and memory and everything that you can see in one screen is doing. Yeah, and then if you if the top I/O mode is interesting, um, Alan Summers has written something called ZTop um, that is written in Rust and it uses it provides top but broken down by ZFS dataset. Mm -hmm. Cool. So which dataset is reading and writing the most on my system right now? Oh, I'm already intrigued. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's that's based on the the feature that was added in OpenZFS two. Uh, that's part of thirteen, but I had backported it to twelve in time for twelve point two. Um, and so there's a bunch of sysctls that provide the number of read and write IOPS and also the number of read and write bytes uh, for each data set as uh, some sysctls. And then Alan, other Alan, <laughs> Alan with one L has wrapped that up 
uh, into a, a tool, a top-like tool, so that you can actually tell, you know, which of the data sets is keeping your disks yeah, busy. Who's hogging? Because you know, often you know, top is nice. Oh, my CPU is busy. Whose fault is it? <laughs> but when it's your disk, top dash MIO can maybe help a bit. But you know, the answer might be NFS is doing all the writing. It's like okay, but that doesn't tell me what it's writing. So switching over into to ZTop, and then it'd be like, oh. I see it's a data set for customer foo. And that's that's who's, you know, writing all that stuff to the disk. I will build more for that. Um, yeah, so you can use that to your own uh, benefits. So that's the article. Great write-up. And uh, we look at other things from Clara next week. Uh, oh, yes, it's time for News Roundup this week. We have Measuring the Power Efficiency of a CPU Frequency Scheduler on OpenBSD. Another uh, great post by Solin. Uh, this is, I started to work on the OpenBSD code dealing with CPU frequency scaling. The current automatic logic is a trade-off between OK performance and OK battery life. I'd like the auto policy to be different when on battery than when uh, plugged into the wall. Uh, and when on current... Uh, or, you know, just in general to improve battery life for Nomad users and improve performance for people who are actually plugged into the wall. I've been able to make raw changes to produce this effect, but before going further, I wanted to see if I got any uh, improvements in regards to battery life and to which extent it was positive. So in the upcoming sections of the article, I refer to the watt hours unit, meaning watt hours. It's a, a measurement unit for the quantity of energy used because energy used is absolutely not linear, we can make an average of the usage and scale it out to one hour so that we can easily compare the numbers. An oven that draws one kilowatt uh, when on is being used for an hour would use one kilowatt hour. While you know an electric heater drawing two kilowatts when on and turned on for only 30 minutes would also use one kilowatt hour. Yeah, well, because it's an hour. And these distinctions become important because I mean, in the past at conferences, we're like, oh, I can squeeze out half an hour more if I set the setting a bit lower. Um, <laughs> used to be so yeah, important. And, you know, the life of your battery is usually in watt hours. And so if you draw fewer watts, you will get more hours. And if you draw more watts, you will get fewer hours. You might su survive that train ride or plane ride with enough juice. Well, you can charge, of course, there. But Although usually, yes, if you're lucky, <laughs> your train and plane have power. It's you know, oftentimes it's when you're sitting at a desk at a conference where you might not actually be able to get power. Right in the middle, yeah. <laughs> uh, so how to understand power usage for Nomad users? Uh, well, one might think that the faster you do a task, the less time the system stays up and the less battery we use. It's not entirely true for laptops or computers, although sometimes it is. Uh, you know, that's where the frequency scaling stuff comes in is for certain tasks, it is actually better to run the CPU faster, use more power, but finish the work faster. But only if, you know, the curve is right, basically. If using twice as much power lets you get the job done three times as fast, great. But if using twice as much power only uh, lets you do it one and a half times faster, that's actually worse, and you'd want to do it slower instead. Uh, and so then they talk about there's two kinds of loads on a system, interactive, and the user's doing stuff, and non-interactive. In non-interactive mode, let's imagine the user powers on the computer uh, to run a job and expect it to be finished as soon as possible and then shut down the computer. This is, they think, highly unusual for people using a laptop on battery. Most of the time, users with the laptop will want their computer to be able to stay up as long as possible without having uh, 
uh, to charge. In this scenario, I will call interactive. The computer may be up uh, with lots of idle time where the human operator is just typing or thinking or reading. Usually one doesn't power off a computer and power it on again uh, while the person is sitting in front of the laptop. So for a given task, among the main tasks, staying up may not be more efficient in regards to battery uh, if it takes less time, uh, because whenever that time is uh, to take to do X, you still need somebody sitting at the computer. Mm. <laughs> so they come up with a testing protocol, basically uh, install the clean package of GZ Doom, unplug the charger from the wall, uh, dump the current uh, status of their battery, the hardware.sensors.acpibattery1.watthour3 value, which is the remaining uh, battery in watt hours, uh, run compilation of the port for GZDoom uh, with the DPB, which is their distributed package builder, uh, set up to use all the cores. Then uh, dump the value of the watt hours uh, sensor again, wait for 18 minutes and 43 seconds. I'm not sure why that is, uh, but it's just an amount of idle, I guess. Uh, and then dump that watt hours value again. Uh, so why did they pick GZ Doom? And mostly they said it's a port I know can be compiled uh, with parallel builds and allows it to use a lot of CPU cores. And I know it takes some time, but isn't going to be too long or too short. And then why did they pick 18 minutes and 43 seconds? Uh, that's the time it takes for the power saving policy to compile uh, game slash GZ Doom. So I need to compare the amount of energy used by both policies for the exact same time with the exact same job. And so they just use that amount of time to measure. Hmm. Uh, they say, I could have extended the duration of the test so that power savings would have had uh, some idle time, but given that the idle time is drawing the exact same power with both policies, that probably would have been meaningless. And so they uh, compared the results and with the power saving profile, it compiled in 1123 seconds. Whereas with the auto profile, uh, the compile finished in 871 seconds, giving it 252 seconds of idle time. But when looking at the energy used, um, with power saving, compile took 5.9 watt hours, uh, and the auto only used 5.6, uh, providing savings, but the idle ended up using 0.74, meaning that the faster mode actually ended up using uh, 0.44 kilowatt hours more electricity. Mm. So they'd have to try to get the idle power number down more in order to uh, make the savings, uh, the trade-off of, of running the CPU harder actually uh, pay off. Um, but say for the same job done, compiling GZDoom and then sitting around for 18 minutes uh, and 43 seconds, the power saving policy uh, used slightly less energy than the auto policy. Um, this is just testing I've made uh, and for testing purposes, it may not actually be constructive or you know very realistic to how other people use their computer. Um, but it's just the start of uh, this longer project to look at energy efficiency on OpenBSD. Yeah, I think energy efficiency is going to play a lot more uh, in operating systems development as it used to have, not just for power saving laptops, but also be you know energy efficiency and uh, having a green thumb of sorts. And schedulers and their policy could also be set to, you know, be very power efficient rather than 
you know, use as much power as you can. All right. And now we have the Cult of BSD. Uh, Cult of BSD, a new FreeBSD-based project uh, over on SourceForge.net. And this is, uh, by the summary, the first alpha release of Cult BSD Plasma Edition, codenamed The Supreme, uh, based on FreeBSD 13. And uh, they have a graphical installer that's already uh, an upgrade to the base FreeBSD. And then they have they switched back to Z-standard compression for root. They will check its performance and if faster than LZMA with compression level 1 and keep that as it takes less space for sure. Oh yeah, <laughs> much sure compared to LZMA. But well, CPUs need to be able to process that. Then third, they added a Plasma 5 Plasma PA Pulse Audio Volume Icon Mixer that was missing. Uh, that's probably referring to an earlier release. And fourth, added support for all old Radeon GPUs that needed Radeon KMS drivers to work. Okay, they describe how to uh, decompress the archive and uh, put that on a disk or USB stick probably. And um, ah, there's a PS1 down there. Not a PlayStation, a PS postscriptum. I'm relatively new to FreeBSD, so don't throw eggs. Okay, that's perfectly fine. I mean, people can start the project and uh, then people will join that. Journal notes, please unmount any drives you have mounted before installing. will be fixed. They provided a PayPal address for people who want to support the project. They uh, features, uh, they featured uh, FreeBSD inside, a cool desktop with nice themes. You can see a couple of screenshots on the webpage and faster than other FreeBSD projects on USB, probably because of the uh, that standard compression. They also have uh, a little bit of a review already. They have a ticket system, wiki, discussion, and a blog. So that's already everything that people usually need to get in touch and help or ask questions. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, if people start on FreeBSD 13, they have uh, a solid base, I think, to start something in there. Not sure if it's a complete desktop distribution or for a different Seems purpose. Seems to be the focus of it with a graphical installer and so on. Yeah. Okay, so we'll watch this. And uh, if there's news, we will mention it, of course. All right, now we have a whole ton of new Beastie Bits collected. So here they are. The first one is OpenBSD on the high five unmatched which is a risk five board that you can maybe be able to buy uh so it's got four risk five u74 cores which are 1.2 gigahertz uh and then one embedded s7 core it has a amd radeon r9 uh 270 two gigabyte graphics card 16 gigs of ram and they put um a western digital sn 730 nvme in it um it says, but it can, but can it run Chrome? And the answer is no. <laughs> uh, so they link, they have the D message there and they say, uh, my desktop uh, computer's power supply died. And rather than replacing the ill-fated PSU, I decided to go with something completely different. OpenBSD's new RISC-5 uh, 64-bit port looked interesting. So I got a high five unmatched to see how it would work as an OpenBSD desktop. Now, I have 5 Unmatched provides a quad-core 1.2 gigahertz 64-bit RISC-V SOC in a mini ITX form factor. and uh, can have 16 gigs of RAM. It supports uh, an M2 80 uh, millimeter slot uh, for NVMe drive. It also has a full-length PCIe slot, uh, though it is internally only actually 8 lanes. Uh, this means that unlike some other development boards, this is well-equipped to serve as an actual desktop replacement 
and not just the little Raspberry Pi. For this build, I went with uh, the Metallic Gear Neo Mini V2 case and uh, an EVGA power supply, um, and then that AMD R9 GPU installed in that PCIe slot. The case is quite nice. Uh, I thought it was a little, oh, sorry, though it has little room for a lot of extra cables, it does fit the full-length GPU comfortably and has adequate airflow. Uh, the unmatched does not require all that much power, nor does it run especially hot. Uh, so the cooling provided by the cases included 120 millimeter intake fan and 140 millimeter exhaust fan uh, work very nicely. The unmatch comes with a small uh, but busy 25 millimeter CPU fan that is uh, just loud enough to be irritating. Uh, some searching shows that folks have replaced it with a larger 40 millimeter Noctua that's much quieter. And depending on how annoyed it gets, I might actually do that. Uh, temps for the two sensors exposed uh, by a CCTL say that it's about 34 to 35 Celsius. So it seems like cooling is in good shape. Uh, they installed OpenBSD 7.0 uh, and followed the instructions and everything worked. Uh, there's a little difference in the installation process apart from the presence of an SD card slot. Uh, the Unmatched comes with a micro SD card preloaded with U-Boot and a small Linux system with XFCE4. This SD card must be inserted while booting the system uh, from USB or NVMe because it will boot the from the SD first, then load the OpenBSD bootloader from there. There are also some dip switches on the board that can override the boot order, but by default, they are set up to boot from the SD card first, and I'm not adventurous enough to change that just yet. Uh, the version of Sci-Fi's Freedom U SDK that is provided uh, includes an SD card uh, with the March version, and I uh, had some trouble connecting to the serial console from OpenBSD. I decided to update this to the September version. I wanted to keep the provided SD card as a backup though. So fragmently ignoring the warnings on Sci-Fi's documentation about SD card compatibility, I tried a variety of micro SD cards that I had sitting around and unsurprisingly, none of them worked. Uh, the board is very picky about which SD cards it will boot and my Samsung Evo and other random cards uh, did not make the cut. I ended up just flashing the new image over the included SD card and the serial port started working. I tried a couple of different GPUs, uh, including a Radeon RX 5700 XT and an RX 460, uh, but those did not work with the AMD GPU driver. The R9 270 works great with the Radeon DRM driver and is capable of driving my 4K display. And X11 runs smooth uh, and everything's good. The built-in Linux distro on the SD card did work with the RX 460, uh, but he didn't get around to trying the 5700. And then they note the onboard Ethernet controller is supported by the CAD driver, but is not uh, currently very reliable, and you're advised to use a USB Ethernet adapter or USB wireless. I gave the onboard Ethernet a try and did not seem to work. I'm uh, currently using an Aetheros USB uh, wireless adapter, and it's working fine. Mm -hmm. uh, performance of the four 1.2 gigahertz cores is uh, you know, very capable, but not overwhelming. It feels significantly faster than the Pinebook Pro, uh, but the Pinebook Pro currently does not have GPU acceleration on OpenBSD, and so it's hard to compare. Uh, and then the package selection is currently rather limited on RISC by RISC-V. Hmm. But sounds like it's uh, getting to be in decent shape. Oh yeah, and it's nice to have these boards available for people to play with. Then next, we have an article on our uh, fellow co-host, uh, Tom Jones' blog, Advanced Documentation Retrieval on FreeBSD. So this was based on a, an email exchange, and I, or he thought that would be too good to not to share with the wider world. 
And so this goes uh, from uh, probably a fan of the show or someone who providing feedback goes, uh, hi, Tom, not realized you've uh, not have your inbox assaulted by our listener feedback. Is there a specific address you'd like that routed to? Uh, and so anyway, here's a choice one and he goes, oh, I don't know what we should do about Michael. That was about uh, the interview we did with Michael Lucas a while back. Uh, I spoke to a priest about an exorcism and he said, I'm not going near that monster, not on your life, which I thought was pretty alarmist for a priest. Follows is a rough a markdown draft of the article Advanced Documentation Retrieval on FreeBSD as we discussed. Tom. And so the article follows. So it starts off with describing, you know, what kind of documentation the FreeBSD project provides from the handbook to the articles and uh, other places where people can find information. And then there's the section about what else is there. Beyond the documentation the project provides, there are outside sources of information on how to use and configure a FreeBSD system. Searching the web will bring up a lot of technical information in the form of blog posts and articles. Searching the web is not the only way to get more information on FreeBSD systems. We can use external daemonized resources by using the FreeBSD-based system tool Invoke. This tool is a little esoteric to use and sadly it's one of the excellent FreeBSD tools written by developers that just quite haven't seen the light of day. Invoke ships in the FreeBSD source tree and is in source, tools, tools, invoke. Invoke isn't built by default, but it is easy to build and install using its make file. So just run make and make install. Invoke requires quite a lot of information to be useful. Annoying the author was in the process of writing a book on Invoke when they went missing traveling in rural Romania. However, from reading the source, we can see the list of information or principles required to correctly invoke documentation. Principles are information locators, which are tied closely to the source of the information. Personal web pages of authors work well and are easy to obtain. More potent sources, such as handwritten notes or the author's blood, work the best. But we can substitute social media accounts to get a similar level of familiar information about the author. More on principles. For our example, we have collected the personal web page, blog, and Twitter account of the source we want to use. We can pass them to invoke as arguments or in a configuration file. In addition to principles, the invoke tool needs to be run from a special environment. A comment in the source code describes this, but it took the author some trial and error to figure out uh, the practice. The code, and I uh, just read that and let you read the rest uh, because it's so good. The uh, code comment reads, invoke must be run from either a larger or lesser circle. These can be ancient, such as the very high quality circle of Mid at Midmar. However, if you are unable to travel, uh, Ars Theurgia Goetia will suffice. You must interface the machine running invoke via galvanic isolator. The transformer in an Ethernet connector with magnetics works great. If you only have an SBC, you'll have to figure out something with transformers. And it gets, let's say, a bit darker than that. So enjoy this whole part. I'm fairly sure you will have a good laugh. Yep. Uh, then we have the OpenBSD WebZine, uh, issue number three. Uh, and they have some interesting stuff here, talking about the, the Longsun architecture being dropped, uh, some of the interesting commits that came out of the H2K221 hackathon. Uh, and some of the new Mastodon and Twitter bots and a bunch of other recent changes like the Realtek firmware are now open source and included in OpenBSD by default. Um, and a bunch of other interesting changes that are part of the 7.0 uh, 
release and interviews and lots of other cool stuff. So definitely worth checking out. Then we have a couple of how-tos for you. The first one is how to connect and use Bluetooth headphones on FreeBSD. So these are described in detail with all the commands that you need to run on the FreeBSD forums, which, by the way, is a good resource for documentation and questions and getting answers there. So people should check out the forums, but they have a special section there for how-tos and FAQs. And here they describe what you need to do to make that work. Yes, great. And there's another one here on how to execute Firefox in a jail using IOCage and the SSH slash jailme setup uh, so that you can actually create uh, containers for your Firefox, which is a very interesting idea. Yeah, in case you wanna, you don't want to have too many websites tracking you and placing little cookies all over. So you can just... Yeah, and especially if you take that and then use ZFS snapshots so that you know, when you're done, you can revert uh, all the files back to how they were before and you get things uh, back to yeah. how they were before so nothing can persist. Exactly, like a fresh install of the browser of the operating system. And the web pages are like, what? Didn't I see this user before? And you're like, no, I'm completely new here. Um, so there's plenty of use cases there uh, and you will probably make use of that as well. Then we have an article about understanding awk and it's a 26 minute read. So of course we can only tease it for you, but it's starting off where awk came from and some very good examples in there to get started for you like printing the first column of a certain uh, string that you're echoing. And then it goes a bit deeper in providing some sample data and then letting you do some interesting stuff like uh, calculations and figuring out depending on the number of fields yeah, that you right. have. One of my favorite ones of awk was just, I, I have this log file that has a bunch of different columns in it and I need to sum up, uh, you know, column three and column seven. Mm -hmm only the ones that match this string. And so it'll just chew through the whole file and at the end tell me the total for column three was this, and the total for column seven was that for the lines that match this regex. And being able to do that in literally one line of, of shell was super awesome. Yeah. Awk is great. Not much to initialize in variables, just use them and it's very straightforward to use, especially for non-programmers or just casual ones. Yeah, and so basically for every line, run this little bit, and then at the end, give me the totals and print them out. Uh, made it super easy to just do things like, you know, which customer is doing this? Or, uh, you know, which which column three had the most column seven data, but etc. Yeah. Or is column four bigger than column three? You can pretty much get all yes, kinds of... Yes, because the other one I use it for is looking for ZFS datasets that have large amounts of snapshots that are overcome. It's like, mm. hey, I do ZFS list with dash P, so it prints the numbers uh, in bytes as machine parsable instead of uh, a, a human readable, and say, hey, Auk, find all the ones where the used and the refer columns differ by like more than 10%. Mm. Uh, and then it <laughs> just prints out only the ones that I'm interested in and so on. Yeah, it's very flexible, the Swiss Army knife of Unix. Then Michael W. Lucas has his Kickstarter uh, open, the Domesticate Your Badgers. Uh, that's new for him doing the Kickstarter, but I hear it's already quite successful. Uh, let's see. His first ever Kickstarter crashed past its first stretch goal in three hours. Uh, he thinks nonfiction books should be written by people who have done the thing. 
If you write a book about systems administration, you ought to have been working as sysadmin for years. If you write a book about rats, you better spend quality time with the squeaky little bastards. If you write a book about martial arts, you better have been a serious student for decades. That's why I don't write a book about, say, DevOps. So where does, you know, I don't know, Savage by System D fit in? But um, yeah, the book would make me a heap of money, but the expense of my reputation and integrity. Friends know better than that to get me started about how to books written by dilettants because the rant can go on for hours. And that's how he introduces his new book, Domesticate Your Badges, Become a Better Writer Through Deliberate Practice. So basically, Lucas writing about the process of writing and how to, you know, produce a book. And he can, uh, he has a Kickstarter where you can at various levels support him and get the book actually happen in the first place and listed you as a uh, supporter in uh, various forms, either ebook or the print version. And so far, oh wow, this has already overshot its goal. But he has some uh, backup plans there for in case people are very uh, gracious in their donations. And so they have plenty of stretch goals to unlock here. So check out the whole Kickstarter part and good luck, Michael, for your, uh, yeah, well, the Kickstarter and the, the actual book coming out. I'm looking forward to it. Yep. And then we have uh, another one here where, uh, is it Patrick? This is Patrick M. Hausen's, uh, yes. who sent this in to let us Yes, uh, so Patrick Hausen has created a, uh, a Vagrant profile to easily get an OpenSense development environment going. So if you need to customize OpenSense in some way, uh, it's a bit of a faff to get all the environment set up, but you can just grab this uh, repo here and just do Vagrant up or whatever and and it's something set up and working very quickly. And this next uh, part on the Trunas forums also is from him or helping out with something in that regard, uh, where it's going to uh, get a bit messy with switches and VLANs. And so he provides the answer in detail so people can uh, hopefully use that on uh, their FreeNAS, uh, TrueNAS in this case. And we thought it would be important enough to mention it here because a lot of people struggle with this, you know, which interface goes which and what kind of uh, interfaces go where. Cool. Thank you, Patrick. Yep. And then we have the console desktop guide, which explains why you might want a desktop that's only a console and doesn't have a GUI. It's a very long read, but definitely worth checking out. And lastly, a reminder about the uh, casual BSD meetup and games uh, that'll be hosted by Charmbug at the end of this month. So Tuesday, November 30th uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, the Charmbug will be having their next casual meetup. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always good to see people still meeting up online and making the BSD user groups uh, meet again and regularly. And so uh, if you want to join that and see how people uh, or what they talk about, so this is a good uh, chance to do that. Before we dive in our next bit of the show, the famous or well, very popular uh, feedback and questions section, we should mention the Tarsnap sponsor for this week. And Tarsnap is very unique in the way that they provide their service. A lot, I mean, there's a lot of people out there or a lot of companies even that provide a backup service. But what Tarsnap does is it's doing it in a very secure way. Everyone is praising their backup system as very secure, but the security usually starts when it's the data is reaching their cloud or their, their servers. In Tarsnap's parlor, that's a bit late for the encryption. 
TarSnap encrypts locally before any data leaves your disk or your devices. So it checks out what kind of you know, data reduction it can achieve by compression and uh, segmenting and deduplicating certain blocks. And then after that compressed block is done, nothing else can be squeezed out. Then it's encrypted with your personal key that hopefully never leaves your machine. And then once your file is properly secured and encrypted, only then the TarSnap uh, sends it to its servers and stores those files there securely. And then they sit waiting, waiting, waiting. No one else can look at them from the server side or even the rack monkey uh, stumbling upon it because it's all gibberish for them. And one day you need your files back because that uh, lightning strike killed your hard disk or whatever it is. You can still, if you have your key on a maybe a backup disk somewhere else or on a separate USB stick, download those files again from TarSnap servers on an AWS and then do the reverse and get your real files back readable. Very challenging uh, pricing also. I mean, a lot of backup servers uh, use a monthly fee or a yearly one or astronomical price per gigabyte. TarSnap is very challenging in this regard, very cheap because they think, well, a lot of people need to back up a lot of files. So why charge them more for bigger files, right? They probably won't use my backup service for big files. But here is the catch. You can store up your account for like maybe $10 and then it's pay as you go. You basically only pay for the usage and the backup storage. And when it's getting low on your account, then they will let you know, of course, in front or a couple of days before. And so you can never get the surprise bill that other people have probably sent you. So TarSnap is very uh, interesting in that regard. You can also look into the source code. That's the paranoid part of the equation here. It has a lot of components uh, available to look at. And you can look at its documentation and try out, for example, I have this many files around or how big they might be. How much would I have to pay for that? You can do a dry run of TarSnap and that shows you how much you would probably pay. So check out TarSnap and get backupping. Here is, yeah, the questions reach us on feedback at bsdnow.tv. One of those is the one from Dan about ZFS. And these are questions we happily help with. Uh, if we can, we recently replaced one disk at a time to grow our six disk ZFS array, resilvering every time. Now we get a report that there's a native block size mismatch. Thusly, uh, ZPool state, uh, online, one or more devices are configured to use non-native block size. Okay, yeah, that's uh, a bit of a... Yeah, so this is basically expected if you're replacing older disks with newer disks. Uh, if the older disk used a native 512 byte sector size and the new disks are 4K native, um, then that's just what it is uh there's not that much uh you can do about it so uh it isn't possible to replace the disk one at a time and solve the problem because in a raid z um each block is is met so there's the uh, dva the data virtual address and that is relative to the entire raid z uh so you know you have your six disks here uh so uh, the dva seven loops back to the first disk and so on. And those DVAs are uh, in the 512 byte size. And so um, they just wouldn't work properly uh, to be able to change it. So you can only do it by moving the data off and moving the data back on, uh, or basically recreating the VDEV uh, or the whole pool. 
Um, it's probably not that urgent to do so. Um, you know, it definitely is worse performing. Uh, but at the same time, you are likely not writing a lot of 512 byte things to the disk. Um, and so it's probably not going to be that big of a performance issue. It depends on the disks and, and your workload. Um, I know George Wilson at a previous OpenZFS developer conference had uh, talked about uh, a feature where you basically, while the disks are all 512-byte sector, you could set a policy that would make all the allocations be rounded up to 4K so that uh, you know when you're stuck in this situation that you're in, um, that you could at least mitigate some of the performance problems. Uh, but this is why we recommend, even if you have actually 512-byte sector disks, that you set the A-shift uh, to uh, the 4096-byte sectors because down the road, when you replace the hard drives with bigger ones or even just replacement ones, it's likely those are going to be the 4K native and it's just, uh, you know, it's not really possible to buy you know, 15 or 16 terabyte drives that have 512 by sectors, <laughs> or if they are, they'll be more expensive and, and underperforming. Um, so there's no way to fix this incrementally, uh, but it's not necessarily an emergency. It's just impacting your performance. And uh, if, if you can just live with it, then that's probably okay. Um, because yes, it will be a bit of a faff to uh, to do the uh, to rebuild that whole pool if it's you know six relatively large disks now uh, that you've uh, you know gone through the six resilvers to replace each disk one at a time. Uh, but you know it's not always possible to oh have another machine install all six of the new disks, create a pool, and replicate everything over, and then switch. I generally have the luxury of doing that because I have enough spare machines or whatever. But that's not always uh, an option that's available to everyone. Uh, so no easy fix, although it's not uh, necessarily critical that you fix it. Yeah, that's a long-term thing you can work with. Okay, so thanks for this. Mostly something you try to avoid having happen, but not a huge... Yeah, cool. Thank you for uh, that question. Next one is Lars with a thank you for us doing an interview. Uh, thanks for interviewing Brian Callahan. He was a very interesting interview. Oh yes, that's uh, what we uh, that's what we did, and it was definitely good. Thank you, Brian, one more time. Uh, interviews in general are a highlight of the show, even though they are rare nowadays. I presume they are a lot of effort, but uh, in their opinion, they're well worth doing. Yes, I know. Uh, thank you for that feedback. We try to do more of these. It's a bit of a scheduling problem and finding the people that they also need to have time for this and willing. <laughs> uh, but we try chasing people down and get something. Uh, <laughs> I mean, with Michael Lucas, he always has something new to talk about in books. But other BSD uh, folks, whatever camp they are from, uh, we'll be happy to have on the show. So if you're out there and think you are working on something interesting we can talk about, then let us know. Next up is Jesse with migrating data from old laptop. Ah, yes. Hello, Jesse. Uh, Jesse writes, uh, I got a new laptop and was wondering if there was a way to mount the old laptop's drive over the network to migrate all my old data, like in section 8.2 of the FreeBSD FAQ. As far as I can tell, the indicated FAQ question would work on a desktop machine with more than one drive attached. Yeah, um, probably the easiest way would be using something like Gate, uh, which is Geomgate, uh, which provides a way to do make a device available over the network. 
uh, I think like the man page for G8C shows how to do it with a CD-ROM drive, but you could obviously do it with the hard drive. Um, but you would want to be not using that hard drive at the time. So the answer is probably boot the old laptop off of a FreeBSD USB stick and then set up Gate to basically expose dev ADA0 or whatever to uh, your new laptop, and then you can copy the files over. Uh, it depends on your file system. If it's uh, UFS, then dump is probably the right answer. If it's ZFS, you can just do, uh, uh, on the old laptop, just do a ZFS snapshot-r to recursively snapshot the whole pool, and you can even just send the whole thing uh, to the new laptop. Yeah. Uh, but if you just want to take the disk in one machine and make it show up in the other machine, uh, Gate or iSCSI are the way to do that. Um, and the instructions for both, I think, are in the handbook. This iSCSI is definitely in the handbook. Uh, and the man pages are very helpful and have examples. So like the uh, the Gate-C uh, man page has an example of, of sharing a CD-ROM between machines. Uh, and you could easily adapt that to do a hard drive. Uh, but otherwise, uh, you could use probably just do... Uh, a UFS dump or a ZFS send and pipe it to SSH or whatever and do it over the network uh, rather than having to necessarily expose the whole disk that way. It depends what you're trying to do. Mm. Yeah, there's plenty of ways to get the data off. A FreeBSD USB stick and G8C easy way to make the hard drive from old laptop show up as a second disk on mm -hmm. the new laptop so that you can easily copy files over. Cool. I think that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. We have uh, more, of course, in the future. Uh, if you have questions in between or feedback, send this to our feedback at bsdnow.tv address, especially for the planned Christmas, New Year's episode where you interview us, uh, send us questions. Otherwise, there won't be much to talk about. And then uh, we'll be happy to do such an episode. Yep. And remember, uh, you can support us with Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash bsdnow. If you uh, subscribe for $5 a month or more, you get uh, an RSS feed of these episodes with no ads in them. Also, if you have ideas for additional perks to add to our Patreon, let us know.